Please bow your heads once more with me as we go to the Lord together in prayer. Let's pray together. Well, Father, you tell us in your word that you are watching over your word to perform it. So we ask you now, would you watch over your word now? Watch over it now. Perform it in our hearts to magnify your son, Jesus Christ, and to renew us in his image together. For Jesus' sake, amen. Last week, I read a human interest piece on Aaron Judge, of all people. Aaron Judge is the Yankees star outfielder. That's baseball, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the sports world. He's a home run hitter. He is in the midst of setting records this year for home runs. A guy had caught one of his home run balls in the outfield bleachers, and he had immediately given it to a kid sitting beside him, and that kid, of course, went bonkers. And that moment was caught on camera, and it went viral. And so a few games later, Aaron Judge himself made time to meet with both the adult and the kid he gave the ball to uh, in the dugout before the first pitch of one of the next games. And the kid was just lit. Here's Aaron Judge, larger than life. This guy is 6'6". He's built like a tank. And he's taking a knee to talk to this little boy who just like, can't believe what's happening to him in the dugout of the Yankees. And as I'm reading this all by myself, I'm just sitting there reading this, and I'm kind of embarrassed to say, I'm like, I'm tearing up. I'm like, <laughs> there's something about human greatness just kindly condescending to human smallness. I mean, it gets you every time, doesn't it? It doesn't get old. We love seeing that. Yet somehow we are not always so awed when God's greatness condescends to human smallness. In John 13, verses 1 to 30, if you'll turn there with me in your Bibles, John 13, verses 1 to 30, Jesus, the Son of God, second person of the eternal Trinity stoops down to serve his disciples in the most menial way imaginable. This is love. This is humility. But it's not the superficial, fleeting kindness of a superstar to a fan. It is the love of God's Son for those He came to save from sin and death. And we'll see from John 13, verses 1 to 30, that Jesus loves His followers in six specific ways. Six ways that Jesus loves us as those who follow Him. So follow along with me in your Bibles as I read out loud for us John 13, verses 1 to 30. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, 
you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one who I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Jesus had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Six ways that Jesus loves his followers. First, Jesus loves us knowingly. He loves us knowingly. Verses 1 to 4, everything Jesus does to love his disciples here is conditioned and informed by what he knows. Verse 1, he knew his ministry and mission. His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father through his death and resurrection. And he knew it. In verse 3, he knew his authority. The authority that the Father had given all things into his hands. He knew his identity, that he had come from God. And he knew his destiny, that he was going back to God. Jesus knew his ministry, his authority, his identity, and his destiny. He knew who he was, who he is. What he came to do, the authority that he had to do it. And that it was now time for him to complete what he had started. That's why he was able and willing to do what he did for them. He didn't do all these things for them in spite of who he was. He did them because he knew exactly who he is. His knowledge of himself informs and motivates, enables him to persevere in loving his disciples as he does all the way to the end. Not just to the end of his time on earth, but to the whole extent of dying for them on the cross. Jesus knew his hourglass was emptying out. He knew what he would have to do, how we would have to die for his people to save them from our sins. And he wanted to leave them now with this image and this experience, tangible as it is. He loved them to the end in the secure knowledge of who he is, what he came to do, and where he's going. 
You know, sometimes we think that Jesus must be too important to spend time or energy on us. You ever think like that about Jesus? Oh, he's got better things to do. He's got better things to think about. I shouldn't bring this to him. He doesn't care. He doesn't want me to care. That that is not how Jesus views himself. Especially not in his relationship with those he died to save. Jesus loves his own precisely because he knows his ministry, his authority, his identity, and his destiny. He knows who he is, and that is why he loves you, Christian, as he does. Jesus does not love his people in spite of who he is. He loves his people because he knows who he is. But Jesus also loves his disciples to the end because he had already loved them in the world. Jesus always finishes what he starts. Christian, Jesus will complete the good work in you that he started. You can trust him. I know it's taking a long time. I know it's hard. I know you don't always understand what he's doing and why he's doing these things in your life. He will finish what he started. He will love you to the end. The end here anticipates what he says from the cross. It is finished. That's the end. He will love us all the way. He will love us all the way. He loved them already and now he wants to leave them with this emblem of his love, unforgettable, in the form of humble service. Surprisingly humble, as we have already heard. Surprisingly humble. The second way Jesus loves us, he loves us humbly. Verses 4 to 7. Knowing all that he knows, Jesus gets up from the table, lays down his honorable robe, and takes up a towel, what might amount to a servant's apron. He could wrap it all the way around himself. This laying down of his robe and taking up of his apron illustrates what he's going to do with his own life. These two verbs have already been used together in John 10, 17, and 18. I lay down my life in order that I may take it up again. Laying down, taking up. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. Again, he knows. That's why he does. This laying down of his life is what he is visually symbolizing in laying down his outer robe in order to wash their feet. There's another step in his laying down of his life for them. He's laying down the honor of being the host of this dinner. He's laying down the right to be seated in the seat of honor and served as the host. And instead, look at what he does in verse 5. He pours water in a bowl. That's a fine translation, pouring, except for the fact that it masks a play on words that John probably intends In verse 2, the devil put it, threw it, cast it into Jesus' heart to betray Jesus. Meanwhile, Jesus puts water, throws it, casts it into a bowl to wash his disciples' feet. 
Satan's purpose in casting into Judas's heart is a corrupting and betraying purpose. Jesus' purpose is cleansing and faithful. Now, it was one thing for a host to provide water so that guests could wash their own feet. That's what Abraham did in Genesis 18. That's a good host. Especially in ancient Near East, where you wore sandals, you're walking on dirt, dust roads, your feet would get really dirty. It was even a normal thing for a host's slave to wash his guest's feet. It was expected. What was unheard of was for an honorable host to himself wash his guest's feet with his own hands. That kind of work was considered too menial, too embarrassing, too humiliating for any Roman freedman to do. If you are free, if you are a free Roman citizen, you never washed anyone else's feet, no matter what your status was relative to them. That was slave work. What's more, there was a culture of etiquette between teachers and their disciples or followers in the first century. A teacher could expect his students to do almost anything for him. Except deal with his feet. A teacher did not expect this of his students. It was the one thing he would not expect. And yet here, it's the teacher doing what most teachers would never expect their disciples to do for them. This is not just a minor role reversal. This is a total upending of how people thought about authority, leadership, hierarchy. It's a whole different leadership model. We should also notice what this would do to the social and spatial dynamic. I don't don't know about you, but uh, there are times when I feel like I deal with social anxiety. I'll just say it. Like you get nervous around people. You feel like you're alone in a crowd and you're like, uh, I don't have a conversation. What do I do? You start to feel weird about yourself like that, you know? You know what I'm talking about. Don't act like you don't know what I'm talking about. You know. I'm not the only one. Look at what this would have done to this social situation for Jesus. You, you like it when you're in a conversation after church, right? You like that. What you don't like is when you're looking for a conversation, you don't know how to find one, and you're like, ah, I think I'm just going to leave, right? The same kind of thing is going to happen right here. At a special meal like Passover, people didn't sit like we do at a table. They reclined on floor cushions at low tables like the ones you might find at an authentic Japanese restaurant. But in Middle Eastern culture, you didn't sit Indian style or on your knees. You propped yourself up on your left elbow like this with your head towards the table. And that would leave your right hand free to eat. That meant all the food had to be cut up. You were eating finger food at a meal like that. It also meant then that everybody's feet were away from the table. And everybody's head was towards the table. So if Jesus is going to get up and wash everybody else's feet, he's not projecting himself into the middle of the social situation. He's doing the opposite. He's putting himself on the outside. He's not attracting attention to himself. He's not putting himself in the middle or in the front. He's putting himself in the back, away from everyone. He's putting himself, as we might say, out of the fun. Out of the center of conversation, away from the center of social interaction. He's putting himself in a position where nobody would be looking at him, and he's putting himself, actually, where the slaves would have been. 
So you'll notice time slows way down here in the narrative, right? It's like John wants you to see yourself there at the table. It's like everything starts going in slow motion. And he wants you to be there with him in your mind as you read the text. You're seeing Jesus get up from the table. He rose. He lays down his robe. He puts on a slave's apron. And he pours water. And get this. He washes their feet. Now, maybe at first nobody notices except the first guy. (laughs) What are you you doing? What are you doing? And as he continues around the perimeter, you can almost hear the silence. What is he doing? What is this? And you wonder if they thought, has Jesus totally forgotten himself? He's the teacher. He is our master. We're the ones obeying him. We have called him son of God. We have called him king of Israel. And look at him. But John says Jesus does this not because Jesus forgets who he is, but again, precisely because he knows who he is. And who is he? Who does he think he is? He thinks he is the suffering servant from Isaiah, whose glory Isaiah saw. He did not consider equality with God something to be exploited to his own advantage, But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. Jesus loves you, Christian, humbly. He loves you like this. This is what it looks like for him to take the form of a servant towards you. I mean, it's it's almost so humble, it's embarrassing to you. This is what meekness looks like. This is love. This is a kind of love that doesn't have to be at the center of human attention or honor. He's not afraid to be either overlooked or seen as the servant he is. When he gets up to serve, he's not embarrassed or self-conscious by being away from the center. And when the disciples notice what he's doing, he's not awkward. He just serves them in the most menial way possible. Sinner, I I want you to look at your Savior here. I want you to look at him. You think... You cannot approach this Jesus in your sin, in your dirtiness. This Jesus washes your feet, man. He loves you with this kind of humble service, which begs the question will you not love and serve? This Christ, even if it puts you on the outside looking in, he went first. Third, Jesus loves us graciously. He loves us graciously. I wasn't sure what word, graciously, patiently, but man, Peter does not get it. When Jesus gets to Peter, Peter wants nothing to do with it. Lord, you wash my feet? Have you forgotten yourself? What do you think you're doing? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterwards you will will understand. And Peter's like, yeah, you're right. I don't understand. I do not understand this at all. I'm not going to understand. 
But Jesus is happy to be misunderstood for the time being. And even that is part of Christ-like humility. You're willing to be misunderstood by the people you're serving. But Peter doubles down. Jesus had said, afterward you'll understand, meaning probably after I die the death, after I lay down my life like I'm symbolizing for you here and laying aside my robe, after I lay down my life and after I take it up again, then you'll understand what I did. But Peter, in effect, says here, I don't care how long you give me. I don't care when afterward is. I will never understand this. You're not washing my feet never in a million years. That's the sense of what he said. Into the age. You, you will never, you will never And Jesus clarifies, look, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. That's a clue to what this foot washing signifies to Jesus. It is self-effacing servanthood for the cleansing of others in anticipation of the cross. He's washing their feet as a symbol of what he will do for them by atoning for their sins in his humiliation and death on the cross. And in that sense, Jesus is saying, look, Peter, my humility in washing your feet, this is actually nothing compared to what I'm going to have to do for you. And the humiliation that I am going to endure for you. So if you, can't, if you can't see me humble myself before you like this now, you're never, you're never going to accept my self-humiliation in your place on the cross. And you need that if you want any share of fellowship with me. course, Peter doesn't understand all that now. All he hears is no foot washing, no relationship with Jesus. So true to character, Peter swings all the way to the opposite extreme. Not my feet only, but my hands and my head. I mean, it's almost comical. Like, Peter, (laughs) chill out, dude. Peter doesn't understand a whole lot right now, does he? But his heart is with Jesus. All Peter wants is a share with Jesus. So whatever that takes, whatever it takes to be with Jesus, whatever it takes to not not have a share in Jesus, he's going to do that and he's going to do it all the way. He's all in. Now it's tempting to spiritualize Jesus' answer in verse 10 as if he's talking about confessing our sins after conversion. That might be an application. But probably what Jesus means is back to the physical idea of being clean for a ceremonial meal like this one. Jesus' explanation, as we'll see, doesn't focus so much on the washing aspect, the cleansing aspect, as it does on the humility of dealing with other people's feet. It's the foot of the foot washing that is remarkable here. When you come to this kind of ceremonial meal, we all assume that you've already bathed ceremonially. (laughs) I I don't need to give you a ceremonial bath, Peter. All that's left is to clean your feet. What I'm doing for you now is enough for the present purpose. That's all Jesus is saying. But when Jesus says in verse 10, you are clean but not all of you, now he's playing on a clear double meaning. He means you are clean for the ceremonial meal, but he's also meaning you are already clean spiritually in the sense of believing the word that Jesus has spoken to them, the word that I've spoken to you is clean. You are clean because of the word I've spoken to you, John 15. The word about his life and death in their place for their sins. But one of them is not clean. One of them has not received that word in his heart. They're all ceremonially clean outwardly for the meal. But Judas is not clean in the sense of having a persevering faith and loyalty to Jesus that will save him. He's not clean. Again, verse 11, we get the same, the theme that Jesus knew This time, not just about himself, but about Judas. And that knowing is contrasted with Peter's radical misunderstanding. Jesus knows everything. Peter understands nothing. And Jesus is so gracious with him. I mean, he he just patiently kind of walks Peter through it. Right? Christian, look at your Christ here. Look at how he deals with you. He's not frustrated with Peter's ignorance or slowness to understand. You ever try to teach somebody something really basic and they don't get it? 
I don't, I don't know what that is for you, whether it's a household chore or whether it's some simple task at work. And they're like, wait a minute, what? And you've been doing it for a long time. You're like, no, no, like this. You're like, wait a minute, what? You're like, dude, <laughs> you're testing me, man. Common sense. This is all you got to do, right? You start to get a little agitated. There's none of that in Jesus' heart here. None of it. Whether it's toward Peter or towards you. Jesus is not upset or angry. He's not impatient. He's not even irritated. Peter has been with Jesus three years now. Think about that. Three years walking around with Jesus, day after day after day after day after day after day. Three years. And it's like he's no closer to understanding what Jesus is about than when Jesus first found him. First, Peter objects to being served by Jesus. Then he doubles down. Then when Jesus tells him really how it is, Peter says something ridiculous. Not the sharpest tool in the shed. This does not look promising. Yet Jesus is gracious with him. And Christian, if what matters most to you is having a share with Jesus personally, then Jesus is just as gracious with you. We're all full of failures, fumblings, misunderstandings, slowness. And Jesus is not frustrated with you. Jesus doesn't get frustrated with you. He is gracious. He knows he has to serve us before we can ever serve him or each other as he intends. And yet he does expect us to learn how to love and serve one another by watching him love and serve us. It's a fourth way that he loves us. He loves us expectantly. He loves us expectantly with an expectation that we now learn how to love each other like he loved us. Verses 12 to 17, Jesus puts his outer robe back on, reclines again with him at the table and asks them, do you understand what I've done for you? I think that's probably a rhetorical question. (laughs) You don't understand what I did for you, do you? (laughs) Not if Peter is any indication. But there's that knowing and understanding theme again. He has to teach them. He doesn't answer his own question until verse 15. I've given you an example. That's what I've done. The verse 13 and 14 are the setup to the answer. Jesus just modeled for them how he wants authority, relationship, and service to work among his followers. He's the great one among them, teacher, master, but he washed the feet of all his followers as the one who was most humble among them. So if they follow him, if they learn from him, if they admire him, if they imitate him as their leader and teacher, then they will view leadership and apply greatness like he does. Jesus is the great one. Yet foot washing is not beneath his dignity. Jesus does not consider himself above the most menial service to the lowliest and most misunderstanding of saints. And therefore, he expects us to follow his example with each other. That's why he did this. He wanted them to see that he, great as he is, is not above serving the least saint in the most menial way. And he wants his example to bind our consciences. Just as I have served you, you ought, you ought to serve one another. I do not think this means he's making foot washing an ordinance like baptism or the Lord's Supper as in some denominations. Grace Brethren churches observe foot washing as an ordinance. So do free will Baptist churches like the one I grew up in. Foot washing in the first century was so common it was pedestrian. It just happened in the normal walking course of life. Everybody had to wash their feet. 
when they came in from walking on dirt roads and sandals. Foot washing was everyday menial slave work. So the idea is that among Christians, there should be no task too menial for you to do for each other. If Jesus washed our feet, there is no task beneath us for each other. And that should be normal as foot washing was among servants in the first century. If Jesus washed our feet, then there is no task beneath us. And we are not above doing the least act of service for what may look like from a worldly perspective, the least important, lowest class Christian among us. What Jesus did here flattens the social and economic hierarchy. Socioeconomic status means absolutely nothing in the churches. What matters is love, serving one another, imitating Christ, illustrating Christ for others. That's how Jesus loved his own to the end, and that is how we should be loving each other in the churches across social and economic classes, even when we feel like we're being wronged by each other. Jesus has given us this, he says, as an example. It's a pattern. It's a template. It's a model. Do it this way. This is the paradigm. We should serve each other even in the most menial ways if we are taking on ourselves the name of the servant leader we say we serve. Servant's not greater than a master. Messenger isn't greater than the one who sent him. An arrogant servant of Jesus is a contradiction in terms. In other words, if you expect everybody else to serve you in this way, and you're not known as someone who serves other people in this way, what are you doing? So, if you're a wealthy, higher-class Christian, when was the last time you served a Christian in this room poorer than yourself? Educated Christian, do you serve those less educated than yourself? If you don't do that, if you bristle at that, if you don't like that we're talking about that right now, if that makes you feel uncomfortable to a prohibitive degree, then Jesus doesn't know what you mean by taking his name on yourself. Because this is how he did it. I mean, if you are so self-conscious that you can't walk across the room and serve someone who looks like they need a conversation... Who are you? If you can't stick around to clean up after a potluck or show up to help cutting the grass or humble yourself to serve in a children's ministry or anything else, why are you calling yourself by Christ's name? I mean, do you serve in any kind of self-lowering, self-forgetting, self-denying way in your home, in the church, in your relationships with other people, in relationships that might make you feel uncomfortable? Or do you just come and go as you please, only expecting to enjoy the music and the sermon and the services that other people provide for you here? See, that's what consumerism does to you. It makes you think of church as a product that you should like and you should feel like, oh, I'm getting my money's worth here. That's not Christianity. That's not living as a Christian. It's not viewing church Christianly. Friends, this kind of service is basic to what Jesus thinks it should mean for you to be a Christian. This is what real Christians do. Poser Christians don't do this stuff. 
giving a ride to an elderly member, walking an older saint to their seat, reading scripture or praying publicly, getting to know an older saint, singing out to the Lord with us without being self-conscious that somebody's actually going to hear you, serving others and opening your home for gospel conversation and prayer and Bible study, maybe when it's inconvenient or maybe when it's costly or maybe when people don't understand how costly and inconvenient it is for you, getting back into your relationships when you feel like you've been wronged. Jesus washed Judas's feet. And you're telling me that you follow him, but you can't humble yourself to serve someone else here in some practical way? I mean, I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. You've read John 13 a million times. You know this. Do you do it? Or do you just expect it from everybody else but yourself? Do you get your feelings hurt because everybody else isn't doing this the way you think they should do it for you? If you know these things, blessed are you, not if everybody else is doing it for you. (laughs) Blessed are you if you do them. Maybe that's why you don't feel so blessed in this church, because you don't do these things for other people. The blessing isn't in the mere knowing or hearing, much less in the receiving of them, it's in the doing. And the living them out, the relating to each other like this, knowing without doing condemns you. Only knowing and doing is what leads to blessing. Knowing Jesus should lead to serving and loving like Jesus. It's going to look differently for each of us, I get that. But there should be something of humble self-forgetfulness and self-denial and self-lowering in the way each of us serves each other in the name of Jesus. We ought to be able to point to something in everybody who's a member of this church to say, yeah, I remember he did this, she did that. He does this, she does that in their home, in particular relationships. Yep, we're all growing. There's tons of room for each of us to grow in this. But is it becoming more and more characteristic? Or is it getting old to you? Now, what's going to enable us to serve like this? I mean, how do you become this kind of person? It's the same knowledge that enabled Jesus to serve as he did. We know that our hour to follow Jesus to the Father is coming. We know that God has given us and all things to Jesus. And he has authority. We know that God has given us all things since he has given us Jesus. And we know that we are going to the Father to be with Jesus. We know all that. And therefore, we can serve humbly without everybody making a big deal out of us or without us feeling like, hey, why isn't everybody else serving me humbly? We serve with eternal perspective, with an eye towards eternity. Jesus served the disciples for his Father's sake, and we serve each other for Jesus' sake and the Father's sake. Listen, if you only serve other people here in this church for something you think is in it for you, or because you're going to get on some inside track, or everybody else is going to look at you thinking you're a great guy because you walk around here doing this or that, You're going to wither, man. Because that's not guaranteed to happen. It probably won't happen. You serve Christ's people because you love and admire Christ himself. You think Christ was like this with me. And that puts an obligation on me now. And I want to be like that. I want to be that, that person in the congregation, not the person that I have been always expecting everybody else to serve me. You want to serve others. You want to serve Christ's people 
because you love Jesus and because you want everyone to be like him, not because you want everyone else to like you. Fifth, Jesus loves us sovereignly. He loves us sovereignly. Verses 18 to 30. More than in any other gospel, the sovereignty of Jesus' love for us and his suffering for us is on full display here in the Gospel of John. Jesus has just called them to follow his example of love by loving and serving each other humbly. And now in verse 18, he shows that he knows one of these disciples is not like the others. One of these disciples knows these things but will not be blessed because he will not do them. But that doesn't mean Jesus is surprised to discover this. I know whom I have chosen, Jesus says. He wants to make sure his disciples know Jesus knows who he's got in the room. He knows all 12 of the 12, even the one who will betray him, and even that he will betray him. He has loved his people sovereignly from the time he chose them, even the one who would betray him. And he chose the way, he chose the one who would betray him because he knew, because Jesus knew Psalm 41.9 had to be fulfilled. He He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. The word of Christ, his word in Scripture, and his word in the flesh is driving history. The history of God's plan to save his people through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Scripture is driving this narrative, and Jesus knows it. And Jesus wants us to know that he knows the future so that we will know he is God from everlasting to everlasting. Look there in verse 19. I'm telling you this now. I'm telling you that one of you is going to betray me before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe that I am. Jesus is fully aware, not only of what is happening, but of what is going to happen before it happens, even when it's against him because Jesus is fully God, not just fully man. And in fact, Jesus is talking here just like God talks in Isaiah 43, 9 through 12. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right. Let them hear and say, it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Isaiah 43, Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed. I declared first, then I saved, and then I proclaimed what that salvation meant, which I had declared before I saved you. When there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Or Isaiah 44, 7 and 8. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Now, how would you proclaim that you're like God? Here's how God thinks you would proclaim it if you think you're like God. Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come. Let them predict the future like I'm predicting the future and predicting that Cyrus, by name, king of Persia, is going to come and deliver my people from their exile. Now, your turn. You tell the future. Let's see if you're a God, like I'm a God. That's how God talks. That's how he challenges other people and other so-called gods. Okay, let's have it. What's going to happen tomorrow? What's going to happen in the future? Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning. That doesn't mean I can tell the difference between the beginning and the end. That means I know how the end is going to end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done. So in Isaiah, God stakes the uniqueness of his divinity on his foreknowledge. 
God distinguishes himself from idols, from all created things, by challenging them to declare the future like he can declare the future. Jesus is doing the exact same thing right here in the same language. That you may believe that I am absolute. I am. Jesus wants them and us to know he is God. And when he proves he is God, we will be his witnesses. The one who receives me, excuse me, the one who receives whomever I send, his witnesses, receives me. And the one who receives me receives the one who sent me. But Jesus already has that witness theme of Isaiah 43 and 46 in his mind. He will soon send them as God sends his witness servant. And Jesus is getting ready to prove to them that he has divine foreknowledge of all events. And therefore that he is the God of Isaiah 43 and 46 who predicted both the exile and the end of the exile. And Jesus starts predicting in the very next verse, verse 21. One of you will betray me. Here we go. It's starting now. And they're all at a loss to know who. So Peter either points or nods to John from down the table a little bit to ask Jesus who it is. I mean, you're sitting next to him. So I don't know what Peter did. He's like, or he's like, like, you know, like say something like, I mean, the nonverbals, I, I don't know. But it must have been interesting. Peter wanted to know. So Jesus tells John in verse 26, after John asks him, it is he who, to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. Why that way? Well, it's to fulfill Psalm 41, 9, which Jesus just quoted, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Jesus washed Judas's feet, even gave him bread, and now Judas is going to thank him with treason. And Jesus knew it all along. In fact, Jesus didn't just know it. Here, Jesus knows and rules not only his false disciples, but Satan himself. The way it reads in verse 26 and 28, Jesus giving Judas the bread functions as if it's Satan's cue. It's Satan's time. It's Satan's signal now to enter into Judas. Okay, I gave him the bread. Satan. Psalm 41.9 is fulfilled. Now. Now go. After he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. As if it's Satan's cue. What's more, Jesus then actually commands and commissions the Satan indwelt Judas. What you do, do quickly. Jesus rules his false disciples and even Satan himself in what looks like the very moment everything is spinning out of his control against him. This, friends, is a sovereign love. This is not sovereignty based on foreknowledge. It's foreknowledge based on sovereignty. There's a difference. Jesus is not in control just because he knows how everybody else will act ahead of time in their free will, and he's so competent as God that he can just respond kind of on the fly. Jesus knows how others act ahead of time because he is in control based on his Father's plan from eternity past. Jesus doesn't command the future simply because he knows ahead of time what everybody else is going to do. It's the other way around. Jesus knows the future because his Father has planned that future for him, as demonstrated from Psalm 41.9. Jesus is in control even when the forces of darkness are all aligning against him. And his sovereignty is here commanding the very forces that will lead him to the cross in our place as our substitute to endure the punishment of God's wrath that we deserve for our sins. What you do, do quickly. Betray me quickly. So Christian, listen to me. Jesus did not go to the cross for you because things got out of hand or spun out of control. Jesus was in control of how and when he went to the cross for you. He orchestrated it. He directed it. He produced it. He wrote it. He choreographed even the movements of the mercenary who sold him out for a little silver. And he did that out of love for you. He did that because he cared about you and your sin and your helplessness and in your ignorance of how you had sinned against him 
and what he would need to do for you to reconcile you to the God you offended. That makes it more meaningful, doesn't it? More reliable, more solid, that this didn't happen to Jesus. Jesus went into it knowingly and in control. Makes it more trustworthy, more loving. The sovereignty of Jesus' Jesus' love makes his love a better kind of love. Precisely because that sovereignty chose to love you sacrificially. He used his sovereign authority to lay down his life for us. That brings us to the sixth and final way that Jesus loves us. He loves us sacrificially. Though Jesus is sovereign over all that's happening, he is painfully aware of the sacrifice he's about to make, the suffering he's about to endure, and it troubles his soul in verse 21. He knows that Judas, a three-year friend, one of his 12 closest, probably one he's sitting right next to at the dinner, is about to hand him over to the one who wants to kill him. I mean, think about how this would have worked, again, spatially. He's got to be able to be close enough to Judas to hand him the morsel. There's 12 of them. Sitting next to Jesus would be an honor at this meal. John was honored to sit next to him, and so was Judas. Judas was an arm's length away from Jesus. Jesus has been the one initiating all the action, but now he's going to be the one acted upon, acted against. Jesus himself has set these wheels in motion. The gears of God's severe providence that will grind Jesus down are now moving. And Jesus is the one who turned the key. These gears are clicking and picking up pace and speed. His hour has come. The clock ticks faster, as it were. Verse 18, the, food that Jesus, the foot that Jesus washed is now going to kick him. It's part of how John is setting this up, literarily. He knows Satan has entered Judas with a piece of bread that Jesus gave him. So in verse 27, Jesus wants Judas to get it over with what you do, do quickly. The scene ends in verse 30 on an ominous note. It was night. The power of darkness You can almost feel it. Now, you can feel the evil. Satan's nearby, ready to do his worst. Jesus senses the nearness of his impending suffering. He is about to make the great sacrifice of his own body and heart under the wrath of Almighty God for the sins of all who will ever trust in him. And it is troubling to all the fullness of his humanity that night. The anguish has begun, and he endures it all by himself without the disciples having any clue of what It is that he is enduring. No one comprehends it but Jesus. Yet look, still he is loving his disciples through it, patiently answering their questions about who it is that's going to betray him. To the very end, they are slow to understand. To the very end, he is putting aside his own anguish to answer their questions. Listen to this dinner conversation, knowing what you know. Jesus just revealed that one of them is going to betray them, Betray him. They're confused. Peter nods to John from across the table like, ask him who it is. And as troubled as Jesus is in his spirit, he answers them without even a hint of self-pity in order to shepherd his disciples through the suffering that he himself is about to undergo. You need to know something. I know what's going to happen. I'm telling you ahead of time. I'm doing it in a way that's going to fulfill this scripture. This conversation is moving closer and closer to the cross, and yet before he gets there, Jesus is already denying himself in order to give himself up, first to God's severe providence and plan for him to suffer, but also to the final stage of preparing his disciples to enter the storm that's about to come over him. In giving the bread to Judas and telling him to act quickly, Jesus is facilitating his own death for us, and John is telling us privately at the table, he's making John alone the witness that confirms Jesus knew. 
Everybody else at the table ends up under the wrong impression of why Jesus, Judas left. They all think he left either to buy more food for the meal or buy food gifts for the poor at Passover. So at this point, only John knows why Judas got up to leave. The narrative doesn't tell you that John told Peter. The narrative only tells you Jesus told John. Jesus doesn't need everybody else at the table to know or acknowledge what he knows about Judas and what Judas is getting ready to do against him. It's enough that John knows and can testify later that Jesus knew. In all this, Jesus is loving his disciples sacrificially even before the cross. You don't have to know what's going on here. You don't have to know how, Jesus, how Judas is betraying me right now. You kind of can't know. But I know. And it's enough that John knows and John doesn't even really understand. Jesus is putting into motion the sacrifice of his body and blood for us on the cross, and yet in the unique moment, he is also setting aside the anguish of his soul to lead and prepare his men for their anguish over his anguish. He is loving them even now in this conversation. He's not retreating. He's not contracting into himself. He is not withdrawing from his disciples even when his spirit is troubled by the oncoming shadow of the cross. John says Jesus testified. He kept bearing witness to them of what he came to do and how it would play out so that they would trust him. This is all about Jesus. And yet here he is fielding their questions. Christian, we marvel at this. How could Jesus be so strong to sacrifice himself in the middle of his troubled spirit? I mean, how is he doing this? I mean, you know... Just a little bit of what this is like when you have sorrow in your own soul and everybody else is asking you, hey, what should I do about this? Hey, who's that? What's going on? And you're like, hey, can you give me a minute? Can this just be about me for a minute? Jesus doesn't do that. How is he doing this? John's been clear about it all along. He's doing it by keeping in mind all that he knows. He knows his hour. He knows his mission. He knows his authority. He knows the Father has given all things into his hand. He came from God. He knows he's going back to God, and he knows it's time. What I want us to see here is that while Jesus does rely on his foreknowledge, he also relies on his eternal perspective, his heavenly perspective, his identity in God in order to love his disciples through his own sacrifice of himself. That is why he can forsake self-pity over his troubled soul. That is why he can lay aside and overcome all of his human sorrow, significant as it was, in order to care for his disciples and their confusion in the middle of his own crisis and betrayal. And with the specter of the Roman cross hanging over his head. As unique as Jesus is, as unique as this moment is for him, there is something for us not only to admire, but to emulate in Jesus here. He loves his disciples sacrificially, even here, already, not only in serving by washing their feet, but also in laying aside his own anguish by the stabilizing power of knowing who he is before God. Christian, you are in This Christ, His Spirit is in you. Your faith is from this same God. You are going to this God in this Christ. God has given you this Christ, and so there is nothing you need that God will not give you for every trial. Christ is mine forevermore. He is our hope in life and death. So you, Christian, are as free now as Jesus was in John 13 to deny your own self-pity. To deny your impulse to retract into your own anguish and hurt, real as it is. To deny the impulse to suck everyone else into the vacuum of your own despair. Even in the moment of your deepest distress and to instead move outward towards others in self-denying concern for them that forgets about what you're anguished about. Even as they watch you endure your hardship. 
Jesus has loved you sacrificially in his death and resurrection so that he could pour out his spirit into you in order to empower and stabilize you for loving others, even in the midst of your own soul's very real, very significant troubles. By God's grace in Christ, you, Christian, are no more a slave to your own self-pity and despair than Jesus was in John 13. Because His Spirit lives in your heart. You know these things. Blessed are you if you do them. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the dying sacrifice and example of Jesus. Thank you for his humility, for his sovereignty, for his love, for his graciousness with us, his sacrifice. Oh Lord, fill us with his spirit. that we might image him better even in our own sorrows and that we would know that he has given us everything we need for life and godliness even in the midst of our soul's trouble and anguish and anxiety about the future. May we rely on him May we know these things and may we act and feel and think on the basis of these truths wrought for us by Jesus. For his glory in our lives and in this church we pray. Amen.